0: Hello and welcome, you are listening to The Refuge Podcast, and this is the second episode of a mini-series devoted to exploring policy issues and creating a bridge between people with lived experience, researchers, and policymakers. I'm your host, Wagdan abdul and today our discussion will focus on understanding and exploring the supports that are needed in schools for children and youth with refugee experience. We will visit language and literacy supports, as well as factors such as educator training and the family and even emotional well-being. We have some great guests today from diverse and interesting backgrounds. First, we have Dr. Andrea McLeod, Professor in Communication Sciences and Disorders at the University of Alberta. Her research focuses on speech and language development in bilingual children. She developed the Simulé, a program that helps refugee children learn a second language while maintaining their home language. So second guest I have with me is Kathleen Viren, who is the co-chair of the Newcomer Education Coalition and the Research and Community Development Project Manager with Immigration Partnership Winnipeg. She's worked in the settlement sector for nearly 10 years in both frontline and management positions. Last but not least, we have Jayesh Manyar, He is an English as an additional language and newcomer education consultant for the government of Manitoba. So thank you so much for joining us, everyone. It's a
1: pleasure. It's great to be here. Thank you.
2: Thank
0: you. Wonderful. So I'm speaking to you today from Toronto, Ontario, and our speakers are located in Manitoba and Alberta. But I feel that our discussion today is going to be relevant across Canada, as supporting refugee youth is relevant to every province and every city. But I wanted to also get started with a personal story. I moved to the UK with my parents at the age of six years old, and I distinctly remember my first few months at school being a confusing experience everything was very different. I did not recognize anyone, and most of all, I did not understand the language. It was a major adjustment, and I wasn't a refugee child coming from a war-torn country. Canada has received thousands of refugee families over the years, and with the recent war in Ukraine, we are expected to support many more. So my first question is, what are some of the challenges that children and youth experience when entering Canadian schools? And I'm going to pass this around the table, but. Let me start with you, Andrea.
1: I think there's many different challenges. Some of that is understanding the school system and the differences in the way the education works here and where folks are from. Some families have experienced uh, periods where children haven't been able to go to school or go to school regularly because they've been in refugee camps or displaced for extended periods of time. And then there's the language, like you were saying, that the parents and the children may not know the language used at school, or only one member of the family does, and sometimes may not be the parent that traditionally has been in charge of education at home. And so those mismatches can really bring about some, some pretty major differences.
0: I can totally relate to, you mentioned the language, you mentioned the navigating the system, and also you mentioned parents, which I think we'll be very interested to get into that a little later in the podcast. How about you, Kathleen, from your perspective and your experience, what are some of the challenges faced by youth?
2: Um, I think especially if you're talking about youth that are coming from forced migration due to war and conflict, you have that trauma that may be associated with it. So you have many youth that have mental health issues or well-being issues that have not been addressed and something that we find often in working with those ethnocultural communities and newcomers and refugees and immigrants is that talking about mental health and well-being or seeking supports is sort of taboo in a way. So being able to bridge and offer those supports is really difficult. And sometimes parents don't want their child to be labeled in a way that could have them be viewed as, you know, unwell or not the same as others. So, getting things like assessments done in schools, even for things like learning issues or or things like that has been very difficult. So just being able to, to address trauma and what that looks like for every individual can be a really big challenge.
0: Thank you for sharing that. And we'd like to really expand on that, talking a little bit more about what we can do to support mental health and wellness of youth entering the school system and addressing the stigma and taboo around it as well. Over to you, Jayesh.
3: So one of the things that we need to keep in mind is that uh, a lot of the families and the children that come to school were forcefully removed from a familiar environment having having to settle in an unfamiliar community and school. It wasn't their choice. So everything is not only new to them, but it's also... Strange, and in addition to what Kathleen said in terms of their mental health, we also have a large amount of trauma and loss and grief that they bring. And sometimes they may share it, sometimes they may not, but then with children, it may manifest itself in various aspects. So some kids what some children may withdraw and not participate, other children may become aggressive. And so there are lots and lots of symptoms that can show up because of that. And then the other thing is that, not just in a new environment, but navigating the school building. Like, where are the washrooms, the gym? Uh, What does changing for gym mean? Recess, you know? Like, how do we move from class to class? What are school bells? And I'll I'll give you an example. (laughs) When I was a school administrator, I was a vice principal of a junior high school, and we had a class of students with interrupted and, or no prior learning in one classroom, and the teacher was phenomenal. She was very kind, and she was very welcoming, but there was a huge fire bell right outside the door, and fire drills were my job. And I did not know, it was my first year as a vice principal. And so, you know, I go on the PA and for the first one we announce there's gonna be a fire drill and this is a procedure. And this class didn't come out. They weren't outside when we did an attendance check. So I go in and they're literally are covering under their desks because that bell was so loud that it reminded them of the sirens and they didn't want to cross that big sound So then the next time, as I explained to them, I went to them and I said, okay, we're going to have a fire drill in five minutes. You know, let's prepare. We're going to have to go down the hall. Once again, that was a misstep on my part because it was the sound that was holding them back. So once again, they didn't come out when they were supposed to. So then next time I went and I had them line up near the door in the hallway." And then when the bell went, then they just went out and it worked out. But I mean, we don't think of as a fire drill, like something that we take for granted, but it was quite traumatic for this group. And then one other thing I'd like to add is that another challenge in the school system is developing a literacy path for uh, children and youth. um, More so for older youth, uh, because if they're like 15, 16, 17 years old and you know, they have interrupted schooling or no prior schooling and they've never held a book. And how do we navigate around that? Or or they've been to school like seven, eight years ago. How do we navigate around that?
0: That's an excellent point. It brings me actually to my next question, which is open for whoever wants to elaborate more. When we're talking about children and youth entering the school system, it's really, really varied children entering very early school years versus adolescents who are in their final few years of high school and getting ready to actually enter like the job market and next steps, their needs are very different and the challenges for them are very different. How can we understand the different needs of children and youth at different levels in the school system?
3: So in terms of needs, there are several factors. You know, one of them is, we talked about this, the social-emotional factor. The other one is the academic factor. The other one is navigating life in a new country. And all of those things kind of intermingle and overlap. So when we're talking about social-emotional problems, one of the things that we ask teachers to be aware of is kindness in a welcoming environment, a warm environment, routine, you know, no, no sudden expectations. And... You know, if you forgot to tell them about an assignment, that's okay, tell them tomorrow. Like don't yell it out at the end of the class. Those are the kinds of things that I work with teachers on. In terms of academics, we have developed a framework for EAL learners that address specifically students with interrupted learning or no prior schooling. And the intent for this is to get them as climatized both academically get some of the background knowledge they need, as well as the language and linguistic functionality, sort of make them feel like they're part of the school. And I think we've been successful because we have stories of students that started in grade nine and 10, and they have graduated and gone to either Red River College, over here, here, the community college, or university. We've had students that have opened their own businesses and hired other people. So we have good examples of success one of the things that my biggest concern is developing deep enough literacy so that they can actually pick up a book and enjoy reading once they're out of school you know and not just what they get on facebook and social media kind so of
0: just, just as a clarification question was this done in the form of a specific program that you would enroll these youth in or how is this done yeah
3: So we have a acronym called LAL, stands for Literacy, Academics and Language. And that is sort of a subset of EAL students. And those are students that have no literacy in their home language or any language. And so we have school divisions that offer sheltered programs. We call them LAL or literacy classes. Uh, And then we have some school divisions that don't have the numbers So what they do is they have pull-out, but the EAL curriculum framework gives them content to work with along with the social-emotional learning.
1: And some of the conversations I've had with parents, there's a lot of worry about their older children and their older children's learning and adjusting. And I tend to focus more on the younger end of the family, so the preschool and early school age. And this is where I see... Families, especially in the first few years, being quite focused on really wanting their older children to succeed and encountering these different challenges when there isn't such a great system to support. But the younger children are cared for and are loved, but maybe there's less thinking about how to prepare them for school and what are those key elements, and that's something that we've been working on. So there's the really wanting to make sure that our older children and youth are ready for post-secondary life, and then the younger ones making sure they're ready to be learning in that classroom uh, once they hit school. I think families face a lot of different challenges, and the challenges may change depending on which child and also as their children are growing up.
3: And then just to add to that, many times parents of EAL learners and LAL learners are probably EAL and LAL themselves. And so for them to navigate in a society that is a literate society, becomes that much more difficult. They don't have the language and the understanding. But one of the things we believe in is parents need to be involved in their children's education. But how can they do that if they have no clue? I have a sort of a, by the way, kind of funny story. We had a young man, he was in grade 10, and he would come at like, you know, like noon, 11 o'clock, like never come in time. And so we got an interpreter and we went and talked to the mom. She was a single mom of four kids and he was the eldest. And he had her convinced that school went till two in the morning. Started at noon and we at two in the morning. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's actually, a, it's humorous, but at the same time, it really does raise, you know, that issue of how can we get parents involved? How can we get them exactly. empowered to understand how the system works so they can support their kids on that side. I want to actually bring Kathleen into this conversation because I know you work with a lot of advocates and parents in the school system as part of the Newcomer Education Coalition and one of your main objectives that I learned about is empowering parents in the education system. Can you tell us a bit more about some of the challenges faced by parents and then what can be done about it? The
2: Newcomer Education Coalition did a research project actually to gain some feedback from newcomer parents about what some of those challenges are that they're facing. And uh, what we were hearing was like Jayesh said, um, that language issue, they're also attending English classes so that they can gain employment and uh, finish their uh, high school credits as well. So they're sort of on par with what their children are going through. Of things like childcare while they're attending classes. Are there programs that they can put their children into? So they're also worrying about things like uh, for those older youth, gang recruitment, right? There's really a ton of risk factors for parents. So parents, I think, as much as they want to be involved with, with their children's education, they're balancing and juggling so much um, that it becomes so difficult to find the time. And then I think, again, it's that cultural thing where, Maybe back home, educators were this entity that you just never got involved with, right? Principals or school administrators were um, a point of authority. So it was something that maybe parents never engaged with back in their home country. So I think they put trust in sending my child to school. My child is going to be taken care of. My child's going to be looked after. I'm entrusting them to a principal or to a teacher because Back home, they were the authority figure. I think for some parents, it's understanding that sometimes they still need to have communications. They still need to be involved. It is a different system here in Canada as opposed to their country of origin. So I think for us, it's really wanting to help them understand what those differences are. And I think it takes both teachers and administrators working with families in order to address that. So if there's communications going out from a school about things like parent-teacher interviews, what is a parent-teacher interview? Having them understand that, but also putting that in a language that they would understand. So are you translating those documents that are being sent home so that a parent can read them and understand that? Is the language that you're using plain language so that it is easily translated and interpreted? If a parent is coming in for parent-teacher interviews, are you providing things like childcare? Are you providing a space where they can bring all of the brothers and sisters and participate in that as well? And also, are you offering interpretation at those interviews for if that parent doesn't speak English? So I think there are accommodations that can be made. I think it's just up to that school and those administrators to make those accommodations.
3: And also, I think the administrators have to learn that parents have also gone through stress and trauma and loss and grief. And so they may be dealing with it, you know, as at their, the best capable they are. And we need to be mindful of that. You know, we had a situation where there was an English class offered for newcomer parents and right next door with a glass wall was the child minding. But this mother would not let her baby, not just out of sight, out of her physical contact. She was so scared that somebody would grab the baby and take it away because that's the experience she had when she was fleeing her country and going through refugee camps. So we need to be mindful of these things when we provide for them.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that really brings in the role of trying to support educators and administrators, uh, training them, educating them, and just basically raising that awareness. Sometimes it's, it is a matter of just didn't know. And I didn't know that this triggered the parent. And sometimes teachers may complain and say, well, the parents are not picking up the, you know, they're not responding to the emails. They're not coming to the teacher parent meetings. What can I do? I'm doing my best here. And so, like you mentioned, Kathleen, just being aware that perhaps there are barriers like the parent doesn't have access to their email and or might not understand the language that it's being written in. And so I wonder if there's been research about this, and I I guess I'm just going to throw it out there about the modes of communication to parents. So perhaps some parents respond better to phone call, again, in their home language or the most comfortable language would be more effective than perhaps just, uh, you know, email communications.
2: And I think the pandemic even sort of showed that, right? When everything went remote, you had students that didn't have access to technology, you had people that just didn't have internet connection in their home, they didn't have a device to use. You know, we often find this, like when I was working in frontline work, they change their telephone numbers consistently. So it becomes so hard to just even get that initial connection to them. So I think it just becomes, how are you finding those modes to connect? One of the programs that was running, I think, through one of the big school divisions is what's called like a community connections program. And I think Winnipeg School Division had what was called intercultural support workers. So they were just individuals that were in the schools. They have those community connections through the ethnocultural communities. They speak the language. They sort of know the parents. So when formal communications weren't working, you really would just seek out those workers to do that one-on-one connection. They would be there for language and interpretation, but that was like one school division. So I think having that across the board, how many other parents would you be able to reach if you had something as simple as this connector that was able to bridge the gap between a formal system and an ethnocultural community?
1: I think that's such an important um component that really does help that communication piece. And it speaks to, it's not only about the language. So sometimes the language helps, but also having that person who's trusted in the community that can help provide some guidance or some context. So I think that's really helpful. And I think one thing that we've found is, is, so there's the families needing to learn more about the schools and the way education works here and what expectations are. But I think it's also really helpful for teachers and administrators to learn about, well, how are families supporting their child's education? Because what I hear from families is that they highly value their child's education. They may show it differently, but they are involved and they do value it. So maybe the parents don't read the email or don't come to parent teachers, but it doesn't mean that they're not they're behind their child, encouraging them and supporting them, it just may look different than some of our families who have been in Canada a really long time.
3: It's like we need to provide what they call um, layers of support. Yeah. Depending on the parents and or the children and their needs.
1: And I think sometimes our schools and school boards think that, well, we can't provide all the layers. And it's like, well, we don't necessarily need all the layers all the time for everyone. But but knowing what those layers might be and that some families may need it for, you know, it might just be six months where they need all the layers and then it's slowly they're doing better and they can figure it out and they've got that support. And other families begin with a little bit, you know, they might have had a, a cousin or a sibling that already lived in Canada. So they have that person they can call and say, what, why are they asking me for this? And that, you know, so I think I think the layers of support are really important and then providing the individualized support, which is challenging, but I think really important in this case.
0: Thank you for that. And it does bring also another thought is the idea of representation and diversity in the school system and how that could facilitate actually learning for both youth, but also the engagement with families is that having teachers and staff and even superintendents that actually represent the communities that they're serving. I wanted to direct this specifically to Kathleen, but again, everybody else is open to share. Why are there still gaps in representation in schools?
2: That's a huge thing that NEC advocates for is uh, that representation piece, both at teaching level, as well as school administrators, school boards, and beyond. I think We hear it from students firsthand that they want to feel that connection to their teacher. They want to see themselves represented. They feel like they'll be more comfortable to express if they have a a need, if it was somebody that knows what they're going through. It's a challenge because there aren't things like equitable hiring policies within school divisions. It's not something that's standardized across all of the divisions as well. And also that data isn't collected without it being voluntary. I think that when you put out surveys or or things like that for people to self-declare, it is voluntary. So it depends on who's going to answer that. But I think when you do take the time to get that data and you look at it, you realize just how, what those disparities are and how vast it is. One of the things, we put out what's called the State of Equity and Education Report and it's an annual report that's sort of like a report card for both government as well as school divisions and the community. And it's looking specifically at that representation piece and we find things like we have one racialized person that represents a school trustee across all of the Winnipeg school divisions. And we have, I think, Five or six school divisions here. So that's, I think, for one division that has 54 trustees to have only one person that identifies as a racialized person is wild, considering they're probably a third of the population of the student population for our cities. So, what does that say that says that the voice of this? Population is going to be stifled in decision making, in policy making, and supports that are needed for those students. You have one person that's going to use their lived experience as a part of that community up against 54 others that have no idea what's going on or maybe don't understand fully that those needs and those barriers that that community is facing. So representation matters because that voice is then a little bit louder and the those issues of conflict or those needs that are there can be really brought to the forefront and addressed systemically. So yeah, representation is key. I think it's one of the first steps and start with your data collection. Cause if you don't know, it's really easy to turn a blind eye to it. So I think if you're able to collect and then just take a really good view of what it is you're working with, what your landscape is, what your student population looks like, how that is represented in your teaching staff and administrators, and then just go from there. I think it's it's one of those key first steps.
0: That's a great point. It also brings to mind some of the barriers that might be faced by internationally trained educators. So teachers who are passionate and experienced come to Canada as newcomers or even as refugees and want to get back into the system to teach and to support young people might have a lot of difficulties getting into the system. First by, again, not being able to navigate the system, but also perhaps the needs for language, but also for the cost of it. It's fairly expensive. I'm an internationally trained medical professional and the journey has been very long. Thankfully, now I am actually going to start my training. And so I'm, I'm super grateful. But I know that a lot of internationally trained professionals are facing huge, huge barriers to getting into the system. I wonder, Jayesh, if you or, or Andrea actually can can speak to that.
1: I was just going to say one additional complication in the refugee context is even just records. So a person may have had the training, but no longer has the proof that they've had that training. The institution may be shut down or no longer exist. All that paperwork that needs to follow you is may not be with you. It may be hard to get validations and then getting our institutions to recognize that this is not an a case of an international student coming with all their information. This is a, an individual who has experienced forced displacement and many barriers, and so there's needs to be kind of a different path. But I don't think many of our post-secondary institutions have those different paths in mind. So figuring out how to get into the into the university system can take some time, and time being several years. So kind of again, that means a person's not involved in the economy the way they, they really should and can be um, based on, on their training and background. Sorry, Jaya, you might have uh, more on that.
3: Yeah. So we had, we had one superintendent who had a really good vision. He realized that a lot of internationally trained educators, either they have to go back to university or they don't have the teaching skills that are required in a Canadian school. So what he did was off the the big, big budget they have, he took $500,000 and he hired 10 internationally trained teachers as interns at half salary. And they were buddied up with another teacher. And they spent the whole year learning the school system, how we teach, what is pedagogy, what are assessment practices, what do we mean by, you know, group work? They spent a whole year learning. Then all the principals were told in uh, April or May that these 10 teachers have to be, have priority in hiring. Mm. And so I started looking at it. So this school division has a budget of something like $45, $50 million, 500000 It's like, you know, so there's a good policy statement here about, Working with internationally trained educators and how we can help them ease into our system.
0: Yeah, that's a great example. I, I also understand that a lot of internationally trained educators who do manage to like go through some progress in the, in the system get stuck in the substitution teacher role and they just stay there for years and are not able to actually find jobs.
3: <laughs> and then they leave.
0: Yeah. And then they leave. And then, so the turnover is really fast. And also kids don't get the chance to really establish a connection with, with their teacher for long enough. I wonder if there's any sort of initiatives or solutions in addition to what you, the idea that you just shared there, Jayesh, that aims to support internationally educated or trained educators.
3: So at the University of Manitoba here in the Faculty of Education, they actually have a program for internationally trained teachers. And so it sort of fast tracks them through the credit system so that they can become certified to teach in Manitoba. But where they end up getting a job, I don't know.
2: And I think one aspect of it, because for them, teaching back in their country of origin might be different than teaching here in Canada. So what we were hearing as well was that there's that need for that peer mentorship as well. And to make sure that they could sort of Just observe those classroom etiquettes that that are taught here and how teaching is taught here. And I think it really needs to be a connection between our formal education system and the post-secondary institutions and community as well. So I think it needs to be all three working together because I think sometimes what happens is they go through, you know, the U of M. And like you said, they enter into these contract positions substitute positions and then they're never getting ahead and that just becomes what they're able to do is just those short term so i think that's where the our formal education system that needs to sort of step in and provide those opportunities for full-time employment
0: let me summarize what we've chatted about so far we've first of all explored the challenges that are faced by children and youth with refugee experience Ranging from language literacy, navigating a new system, emotions, emotional trauma, and stressors related to being in a new place. We've also touched upon parents and empowering caregivers in the process and how to communicate with them optimally. And then we were just talking now about educators and how do we support educators, those on the ground, but those who are trying to enter the system and making things easier for them to get into it and. Work in the education system. So I do want to jump back a wee bit and talk about language support and literacy supports. And I know, Andrea, that you created a project named Stimule, which aimed to educate young people with an additional language. Actually, Maybe you word it much, much better than I. So please tell us more about Stimulé. Sure.
1: So I co-developed Stimulé with my colleague, uh, Seva Mesian. At the time, uh, we were both living in Montreal and we started in 2015, just as there was the announcement of a large wave of new refugees coming in and trying to think about, well, what what do we know how to do and maybe can that be helpful so working together and then partnering with some community partners, what we've really focused on is we realized that there was going to be some pretty good services and supports for school-age children, for the parents, but those preschool or early kindergarten kids going to be kind of in between, uh, not, not necessarily getting any specific supports, but we knew that these were kids that were at risk for, you know, language delays and other learning challenges just because of the trauma and the changes that they've experienced. So what we've focused on is a program that really aims to bring the children's home language and exposure to that school language together and making children feel proud of having that knowledge of their home language and that that's a valuable thing that they have and that they can use it for learning And then using it to help learn some of the vocabulary and ideas about the school language. So in Montreal, it was French. Here in Edmonton, it's often English, but we do work with some French communities here. I think it was Jayesh was saying children have these different reactions to trauma. And what we found is that many of the children we were working with were very, very quiet, especially in new spaces. So trying to encourage them to just communicate and use their voice... And that using their voice and their home language, just great. And, you know, we can use that to learn. So really, that's what we've been working on. And and we find that, that also it has impacts on parents feeling like, oh, okay, my home language is valued too. It's something, it is an asset and it's something that can help my children learn rather than thinking, oh, well, that's something we need to put aside here and ignore. So really trying to think about those young children and those parents as key partners in all of this.
3: Hmm. So, So that's one of the philosophies that we are espousing from government in Manitoba is to value the home language, especially when they are at the beginning stages of English language development. And Jim Cummings indicated that if they already know a language, to learn another language based on the first language is easier and they develop the language faster. And so we tell teachers, when students are using their home language, that's actually a good thing, because if you enhance their home language, their English language learning will also enhance. We have a hard time convincing parents of that because parents believe that, oh, we're in an English country, we're only gonna speak English because we want our kids to learn English. But we're telling schools to explain to the parents that it's really important, talk to your children in your home language, Read to them, have them speak back to you, you know, and when they come home from school, encourage them to tell you about the day in your home language. And that way we know that they're valued. We have one teacher who would send home a book with the children on a Friday, and the student's job is to read the book to their parents and explain it to them in their home language. And then there was one question they had to ask, and then the student had to bring the response back. And to me, that's really important for parents to understand that valuing your home language and culture is extremely important.
0: Mm -hmm. I wish I had heard about that when I was younger, because when I first entered the school system, my parents spoke Arabic. And when they'd speak Arabic at home, I'd feel embarrassed, even outside in school sometimes. I'd feel like shy about it and I'd want them, no, speak only English because I got this impression that it was wrong to speak any other language now that I'm in the school. So it's not even my parents that were hesitant. It was me because I was trying so hard to fit in and trying to seem like every other kid. And so I felt embarrassed by my own language, my home language. And so this project, what you're talking about, Jaish and Andrea, is wonderful because it It really brings to the forefront that embracing your home languages does not hinder you from assimilating, learning another language. It doesn't get in the way of that. So that's pretty wonderful.
3: And let's face it, they become true multilingual students.
0: Yeah. Andrea, I wonder, just following up on your study, what are some of the key findings or take-home messages from yeah, this Yeah, so this is
1: one of those places where our research is also community work. So we've developed this program, and then we've been partnering with community organizations to be able to continue to develop the program. So it, it exists kind of outside of research, and we keep making it better. And then we ask questions and try to figure out what's going on and how we can get it to work better. It's not an intensive program, so we typically do it like once a week for 10 weeks, But even that little bit, we might not see a child learn a whole new vocabulary, but we do see them feeling more proud and more willing to speak spontaneously with groups. It also has been helping to build those connections, especially when I have children, for example, in a a small preschool group who don't necessarily know that somebody else also speaks Arabic or also speaks Somalian in the group. and, And all of a sudden they're like, oh, oh, you do too. And so building those links have been really exciting we would be getting a better understanding of when parents feel like they want their children to learn their home language and they see the value, but they also have a lot of worries and have heard a lot of people saying, well, maybe that's not a good idea. So getting a sense of that where their worries and concerns are means that we've been able to provide some information and some advice that's pretty specific. So some of it is, you know, when your child feels shy or hesitating, to just be positive and continue doing it and maybe there's going to be phases where the child feels shy or or just doesn't want to use their home language for months at a time that's not a time to give up just keep using it and often that wave passes and i kind of use the an- analogy of broccoli like we need to eat broccoli you may not love broccoli but it's good for you and eventually you'll probably find t- a way to to cook it that you'll love it. So we don't stop feeding our children vegetables because they refuse to eat them. We just keep trying and trying in different ways. And that's not that our home languages are vegetable, but that's a way of, of dealing with when our children resist a little bit, right? That there's ways of continuing to encourage them and bring them around because it is good for them in the long term. Oh, and maybe the last thing that we've been doing that's really exciting is, and this kind of speaks to Kathleen's point. So Because we're really developing a program that works with the home language and the language of school, it means that everybody that's involved in this is multilingual. So we've been able to reach out in our university community and find these brilliant students who speak uh, Somalian and English to come and work in our group, who who speak Amharic and English to come and help. So children not only hear a bilingual speaker using their home language but they see somebody who's like a youth from their community and parents see like oh this is a university student that's also from my community so there's these nice pieces where i think we're able to, to to not just say like oh it's great that you're multilingual to a student but saying like this is this is such an asset and we really need it for this project and we're so excited that you can help us in this way so even our university students that work with us i think there's a lot of empowerment around that
3: and can you imagine how powerful it would be if they had a teacher that could do that?
0: Yeah, which, which loops back to our discussion about representation yeah. and diversity in schools and, and the role model system of like you look up to somebody who's you know, your teacher or a peer or an older uh, student who has already been through it, and has already done it. Mm-hmm. So that's a really wonderful discussion. It really loops back very nicely. We are nearing the end of our episode today. But before we go, I want to go around the table and ask you to share with us, after this discussion, some recommendations for our listeners who may be in the policymaking sphere, who can make decisions regarding youth with a refugee experience in schools. What would be your top recommendations to them? Who'd like to start?
2: I think I can probably start. So I think one of the key things is you need to understand that an education system is not its own entity. So I think there needs to be that cross-collaboration between government, between the education system, the schools itself, and community. I think sometimes community, just from my experience as a frontline worker and in management roles, we feel like we often have to pick up the slack that students are not getting in the classroom. In after school programming, in homework clubs, in language clubs, I think sometimes the onus then becomes okay, well, community will deal with it. But there's so much knowledge and skill set in community that can be used in the classroom and to provide those supports. I think that school divisions and teachers and administrators just have to be open to allowing community in the classroom and not just for language interpretation and not just for translation purposes they can really be that cultural bridge and really provide those supports so i think you need to be able to be open to those partnerships and and to see real value in that so i would highly encourage school administrators to seek partnerships with community organizations with ethnocultural communities and with service providers that are helping parents that are helping community members and just collaborate and provide spaces and provide hubs where continuous learning can happen and where those supports are being made available to our students. I think we've been trying it here in in Winnipeg in, in certain divisions and it we find that it's so successful so I think if that can happen on a
0: whole that would be phenomenal to see. I
1: would say building on that is really thinking about language learning as encompassing both the home language and the language of school and the idea that we're educating our children and preparing them for their future. And that needs to include also that home language knowledge that is part of their future. So I think there's this great model that Jayesh was speaking to where there really is this value and this understanding of the importance of that home language in the child's learning, but also the learning of that language at school. And that's something that we need to grow across our different communities and provinces in Canada. I don't think we're all standing or have that shared understanding yet.
3: I'm going to talk about what I was thinking about in a minute, but just add on to Kathleen. One of the problems in school systems is that anybody that comes to volunteer has to have a criminal records check and the registry check. And those can be expensive, like upwards of $150, $200. School divisions don't normally pick that cost up. But I think what they could do is they could create a line in their financial um, budgets that says that, you know, for these purposes, we will facilitate providing the funds for these checks. So we're not saying that you can't, you shouldn't have them. We're just saying that we're going to remove that barrier for them. So one of the things that I really believe that we need is undergraduates training to work with English as an additional language and newcomer students and families. Uh, one of the things that I had proposed, I've been doing it for about 10 years, is make a mandatory course for EAL in undergraduate studies and then offer some graduate work in EAL. So when I got my master's, It was all on adult learning. There was nothing about K-12. They are just in the last couple of years starting to introduce graduate work in the K-12 English as an additional language system. But I really believe that every student that graduates with their Bachelor of Education should have some exposure to teaching EAL students and working with diverse parent populations.
0: These are excellent recommendations. To summarize, partnerships, and embracing partnerships with the community and just realizing how much a community has to offer and can contribute to the education system. Having language learning, encompassing and embracing the home language knowledge and growing across the communities. And another recommendation was to introduce mandatory courses and training for undergraduate uh, students to work with or to be able to have the tools to work with students with English as an additional language. These are excellent. I like that they're actionable. And I think that our listeners will truly appreciate our discussion today. I'm grateful for your time. Thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, I look forward to hearing back from you and to sharing this this podcast
1: with everyone. Thank you so much, Bagdan, for hosting us. Thank you.
3: Thank you. It was a real pleasure um, sharing this platform with you, Andrea. And Kathleen, it was nice to see you again. And I really appreciate inviting me to share because I think it's really important that we take a look at what we have and how we can improve our systems for our children.
0: Thanks very much, everybody. It's been a pleasure. See you soon.